Why north of the Ohio River was slavery free? The reasons weren't as much moral as economic. Go figure. Researched, written and read for you by me, Tamala Rich. The Ohio River was America's longest slavery border. It shaped the culture and institutions of the entire region before the Civil War and into the present day. As I continue expanding my body of work here at the 981 Project, I'll show you what I mean. First, a note about slave borders. We usually think of the Mason-Dixon as the dividing line between slave and free states, but it wasn't intended for that use when it was surveyed to settle a colonial land dispute. The original was only 233 miles long and didn't even cover the entire southern border of Pennsylvania because parts of it weren't part of the land dispute. The Missouri Compromise of 1820 made use of the old survey uh, in defining free and slave states. Now, the Ohio River, 981 miles, is significantly longer and the 1787 Northwest Ordinance banned slavery on its north side. And I've inserted two maps, which are available in the show notes and online. The first shows the original Mason-Dixon line um, on, you know, that borders Pennsylvania, Maryland, Delaware, uh, and by default, New Jersey. Um, but then I've also inserted one that shows the Ohio River as an extension of the Mason-Dixon line for political purposes related to slavery. But I am not having that in my newsletter. Um, I am a purist in this matter, and the Ohio River, the Northwest, the Northwest Territories, you know, use of the Ohio River is distinct from the Mason-Dixon line, and I am not going to conflate the two here. All right, why ban slavery in the Northwest Territory anyway? Growing up in Ohio, my childish mind assumed a moral superiority of ancestors who nobly rejected chattel slavery. It never occurred to me that the Southern states actually insisted on the prohibition when the Northwest Ordinance was drafted. The University of Wisconsin-Madison's Center for the Study of the American Constitution has the clearest explanation for how this went down, and I'm quoting here. The sixth article of the ordinance prohibited slavery and indentured servitude in the territory. When Congress considered the ordinance in July 8, 1787, Massachusetts delegate Nathan Dane, the author of the ordinance, removed Article 6 because the majority of the states attending the Congress were from the South. Southern delegates, however, encouraged Dane to restore the prohibition because Southerners did not want a competing slave economy north of the Ohio River. It was also expected that most immigrants to the territory would come from northern states and thus would probably oppose slavery. Furthermore, by overtly prohibiting slavery north of the Ohio, Congress tacitly would be allowing slavery in the Southwest Territory. With freedom just across the Ohio River, a fugitive slave clause was added to the sixth article. The Articles of Confederation 
had an extradition clause aimed at runaway criminals, but no fugitive slave clause. When the delegates to the Constitutional Convention, then meeting in Philadelphia, saw the fugitive slave clause in the Northwest Ordinance, they, without much debate, inserted a similar clause into the draft constitution. The Fugitive Slave Act of 1793 proved to be somewhat inconsequential in returning runaway slaves, but the much harsher Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 was one of the important steps leading to the Civil War." End quote. Now I'm going to give you a little aside <laughs> in the Department of Truth being stranger than fiction. President Jefferson, a slaveholder, signed the Northwest Ordinance. By that time, he was fathering children on the enslaved Sally Hemings. Their relationship is repugnant to my modern sensibilities, not on racial grounds. Jefferson started exploiting her when she was 14 or 15. His eldest daughter was just a year older than Sally. In a bizarre twist, Sally was half-sister to Jefferson's deceased wife, Martha. Her father, John Wales, took Sally's mother as a, quote, concubine and fathered her five children. I gotta tell you, my mind reels at the mental gymnastics required of everyone in slave cultures. Everyone. As a white woman, I suppose it's natural that I cogitate the white wives of planters. How did they cope with the billy goats they'd married and their enslaved progeny? Family values sure do shift over time. Let's keep that in mind during the ongoing culture wars. And I'll end with an invitation to come to Eastern Kentucky for Winterboro, where I'm speaking on the racial history of the Ohio River Valley. I'll start my session with a quiz and faithful readers will have a leg up on the rest of the audience. The conference is December 15 to 17 at the Heinemann Settlement School. And I have a link to Winterboro in the show notes. I'd love to see you there. I realize December is uh, uh, an interesting time to be on the road, but uh, I will be at Winterboro and really looking forward to not only talking about you know, my topic, but also learning. There's always someone in the audience who's got a layer, a dimension to add to anything and everything I may ever know. And I really look forward to, to learning more at Winterboro. All right, friends, the next newsletter and podcast you get from me will be your December 981 quiz. You can bet some of this will be on it. All right. Until then. I'm Tamala Rich.